Listener Production. Hi, I'm Dilrup Jai Singer. My health and wellness journey began when I lost over 30 kilos. Since then, I've learned how focusing on being healthy both physically and mentally can turn your life around and put you in the driver's seat. And it isn't all eating kale and doing 100 burpees either, although we probably will talk about that. I'm lucky enough to be joined by experts as well as a bunch of idiot comedy mates of mine to talk everything from weight loss to waking up refreshed. Um, without the meditation music and wind chimes, please. We have mentioned how important it is to stay active and talk to others, but also a big contributing factor to how you feel is how often you set time aside for you to do what you want to do. Falling into a habit of not setting time aside for yourself can be a slippery slope. Before you know it, you're getting up, going to work, working, going home, going to bed, rinse and repeat. You can't be the best version of yourself if you don't have a work-life balance. Our next guest knows this better than anyone else. AFL legend Luke Darcy hosts the Empowering Leaders podcast and is also the Director of Innovation and Partnerships at Alida Collective. Luke, thanks so much for coming in. Something that I am new to recognizing in my life as a quote-unquote problem is that I've been doing my dream job for the last 12 years. It's something that I thought was impossible. To be a professional stand-up comedian seemed like an impossibility from the outside looking in. And here I am doing it, which meant that over the last 12 years, I really struggled to take a break. You're someone who played professional football at the top of your game. Was that something that was instilled in you to be able to switch it off when you needed to? Or is that something that you still struggle with in terms of when you're so driven and passionate about your work, taking a break? Hey, thanks for having me on, first and foremost. But uh, I think you probably learned a little bit about health and well-being pretty quickly in that space, that if you didn't take breaks and if you didn't recover well, you probably weren't going to survive. That was something that was instilled at a young age. But I played for a team called the Western Bulldogs, you know, Western suburbs of Melbourne, and I started in 1993. And early on in my career, the president of our club, a guy called David Smorgan, very successful family here in Melbourne, arranged for someone to teach meditation. So mid-90s, early 90s, right. that was pretty out there for the Western yeah. suburbs of Melbourne. When I look back, and it was out there for a lot of my teammates, a lot of the older guys, you know, I can remember them th- looking at this person like they had two heads and thinking yeah. this is just – so a lot of them just ignored it outright. I was probably young enough and open-minded enough that I just was happy to try and learn. And then you're very routine-based when you play professionally. Mm. You know at the start of the year, your diary is set for the whole year almost because it's just training happens on that day, you recover on that day. So I started doing that and did it all throughout my whole career, learnt meditation. And then when I retired from footy in 2007, I stopped doing it instantaneously. And it was a year later, my wife was like, you've become Nightmare was the uh, <laughs> was the description, and I was like, "Gee, that's a bit confronting." Um, didn't think I was going that bad, and it was only then that I realised that wasn't just a foot. That was actually helping me in other parts of my yeah. life in a much more profound way. Back, my wife, she's now a meditation teacher she's in the yoga space, so so she probably picked it up a bit more quickly than me. So I probably felt you know that that was something that was a bit of a gift I didn't realise. I appreciate you saying that because that is the challenge in relationship I've had with meditation, specifically TM, so Transcendental yep. Meditation, which I do, which is that I found initially it wasn't like a profound experience after the 20-minute session. It's not like I do it and all of a sudden I'm like switched on and it's great. But what I do notice is that if I go three days without doing it, I'm grumpier or shorter or just like just not 
functioning at 100%. So I appreciate you saying the same thing because people think that if you do it, you're going to just have everything clear up. Or at least that's how some people sell it to you. But that wasn't my experience. Well, I've got the words of the beautiful Turia Pitt ringing my ears at the moment because I interviewed her on the podcast that I do and she was asking me about my morning routine and I was telling you about how I meditate in the morning. She says, geez, you're smug, aren't you? She said was the <laughs> was the way she described it. And it's like, you know, I used to talk to people all the time because I became a bit obsessed about it. Once it was, you'd be at a dinner party, we'd be talking to someone and my wife was like, you got to stop. It sounds like you're selling Amway. Yeah. You stop saying that because it's not for everyone. And I was like, my intention was, I think, good because you think, you know, I know if I don't do it, yeah, I, I can, in her words, become a nightmare pretty, pretty quickly. So I think I had to sort of tone that down because you're right. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it's not the panacea for everything. It's not this profound sort of thing that happens. But I just know if I stop doing it, yeah, it's nowhere near as good a life as as when I do do it. This is something that's been coming up a fair bit on the podcast, which is the idea of more or having enough, because we can all agree that if you're constantly chasing things and oh, this, I'm, I'm, I need this, I need this, I need that, you're not going to be happy because the goalpost keeps changing. So do you have any sense of how you can wrestle those two voices, the one that's pushing you forward in a healthy way versus the one that's just incessantly wanting more? Well, that's a good question. I, I think you're always trying to find that balance. In the same vein, I think healthy bit of anxiety is actually a healthy thing. That mm. idea about making yourself nervous and but I'm a bit in your space as well. If you're not doing something that least challenges you, that's close to what you really, you know, fundamentally love to do, mm. you know, I know it's very cliche this day. You've got to have purpose. But I genuinely believe that. And so if I haven't got something going on, you know, that I'm genuinely into and wanting to create, that makes me a bit nervous. Am I actually good enough to do this? Am I mm. going to be a chance to to fulfill that? I'm a bit with, if you're staying in a place where you're a bit stagnant and you're not there, I don't think it's healthy as well. And I think if you chase anything obsessively and you let go other parts of your life, if you're just so, you know, focused on nothing else and wanting to be best stand-up comedian in the world and then that puts family in second play or your own health or you give up those other parts of your life mm. in pursuit of one or, or any one of those things in reverse, yeah. if you're not working hard enough to provide, then you're going to come up against. So it's that constant, you know, how do you get that, that mix right? But yeah. I think even thinking about it, Trying to achieve it is probably puts you in uh, in a rare bracket anyway. Yeah, I think that's the start is recognizing that something can be done better. Yeah, and I have this conversation a lot on the the, the podcast that I was talking to you about before, been recording over the last eighteen months, and you talk to all these incredibly successful people in different backgrounds and who've done amazing things. I love the privilege of sitting down with people, and then you see the ones that have got that common thread where they treat their relationships and their family life with exactly the same discipline that they approach. Mm. That sounds really um, romantic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not romantic, put it that way, but but it's pretty smart because, you know, I know a lot of people that are incredibly successful in one part of their life but spend no time applying that and and often that ends in relationship breakdown and they are immeasurably unhappier because of not using that same – Thought. And I find that an interesting conversation because not many of us do. You go, if you're you know, lucky enough for four kids and are married for 20 years and they've got this incredible partner that I uh, love spending time, that would be the dumbest thing in the world for me to not to give that the same attention yeah. I give other areas of my life. I'm going to have a much worse back half of my life if I don't get that right. It sounds like you're, you and your partner now have over 20 years have found your understanding and rhythm in how the two of you operate. What has been some of the lessons, I guess, 20 years in a loving relationship that you could identify as being, oh, these were some of the things that I reckon have stood the test of time for us or what we've gotten better at doing and we make sure 
we do as a as a team? Yeah, again, that's a that's a big question, and and I you said this cliche it does sound cliche, but and I'm, I've got my mates that I do the footy with ringing my ears because they'll be listening to this, and that will, this will give them great joy. But you know, we we walk together every day. We got a, um, Dennis the dog, and probably twice a day, and we go away. I, I had this sort of when we first had the kids, we got to go away together every year. And I care just as a couple, just with, as a couple, yeah, right. the kids. Doesn't have to go far. And I remember her, you know, in tears on the way to the airport, leaving the kid the first time. And now Beck cries on the way home, having to go back to the kid. So <laughs> it's uh, it's come it's come full circle. Yeah. But it means you actually generally enjoy. Like I, it sounds really simple, but I generally enjoy. No matter where we are, we have a good time hanging out together. And given you spend that amount of time, it's a good thing. But I don't think it would happen unless you actually put the time put the in, yeah. and went. You know what? I could go and take another meeting in the morning. I could go and try and make some more money on something, but I value that and it, and it's been a big part of our life. It's that thing of thinking, oh, as long as I get this immediate goal in front of me, you know, everything else can go by the wayside. So I know my relationship with mom and dad can sometimes, because they live overseas and FaceTime and things like that is a bit of a challenge, that I'm like, oh, I'll get to them, but I need to first do this gig or I first need to record this podcast or whatever. And then I'll get to mom and dad and I'm like, dude, time's running out. The conversation I just had before, I just stepped out of recording with uh, Dr. John Tickell, who's a legendary uh, speaker on health and well-being, and and really passionate about studying the blue zone communities, which you would have read about. The the blue zone communities are in Sardinia in Italy, in Okinawa in Japan. Are the oldest living yeah, people who, who routinely live to you know 110 years of it, yeah, and never retired. And really, one of the big ingredients of that is just community and family, like uh-huh. they have got such, and as you get older, you get more respected. We've lost our way with that, hasn't it? Uh-huh. Mum and dad spit hard. We don't spend so much time. It becomes a little bit painful, but we, it feels like we've lost a lot of those lessons from, you know, the healthiest, longest living people on the planet. Speaking of the podcast, you're chatting to some really interesting people. I know whenever I get the chance to speak to people who've achieved great things, there's always things that give me goosebumps. Can you think of some of those goosebump moments that you've had in the last 70-odd episodes? that you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, someone said to me in the podcast, success leaves clues. And I speak to different leaders from different backgrounds, whether they're in a social venture or a sporting person or someone from industry or someone from the arts. I reckon everyone has a sense of routine that supports them to be really good. I'd say all of them have an acute sense of their own self and their own sense of what made them good. I think it's, yeah, is it a case of they are better at not letting themselves down. From my experience of hearing leaders talk, it's that they have set themselves a certain code of conduct and they are uncomfortable breaking those rules even if no one knows about it. Yeah, my mind's going uh, to a guy called Michael Hewitt-Gleason um, who was Edward De Bono's uh, business partner. He was the founder of X10 Thinking. It's sort of how Google, if you work at Google, you, you work for four days and you get a day to think about how you do your job better. So yeah. it's that's Google AdWords came out of that day, which is the biggest single product in the history of the world. You listen to him and he's got a, a brilliant uh, eight-minute book and it just understands your brain around delaying gratification. We all want yeah. the sugar hit, like I'm going to eat that donut rather than go for a well, walk. Well, the marshmallow test, you know, the, the one where you tell a kid, yeah. hey, you've got this marshmallow, but if you wait five minutes, you get a second one. You know, some some kids go for the marshmallow now because the early win is what's important. Can I delay gratification yeah. to have a better life? And, yeah. and and I found him brilliant on understanding that. And mm-hmm. I think that applies to all people who do that consistently well. 
I was saying, you know what, for me to achieve a better life, I'm going to take some time that in the short term is not that sugar hit. That's not going to make me instantly gratified, but I can achieve better things if I've got an understanding around the marshmallow. I'll wait for the second one. You know, why isn't that a common thing that, that we do in other areas of our life? You know, take time out to think about thinking in a better way, not just on that treadmill of going, I'm just going to work hard and work hard. Yeah. What do you reckon some of the things that over the podcast journey, chatting to these high performers, big time leaders that you've gleaned and learned from that you you kind of wish you knew in your playing days? Jeez, I wish I had the maturity at 18 to, to just understand all those lessons and to be, and even understand how to be professional earlier. It took me a long while. I was just immature. I didn't understand. I, it took me to about 25 or 26 to work out. To, to be a professional athlete, to just turn up every day and that's a full-time gig and some don't get that. But the guys that are really good, they're doing another 40% of mm. whatever it might be to get better in a whole range of areas. And I see that in in all the great people that you speak to who achieve enormous things. They're not just doing what everyone else is doing. They're thinking about life in in different ways. I love to be able to transport that back and be out yeah. again and go, Jeez, you were just hanging in there, mate. You were lucky to, <laughs> you know, you know. I, I arrived on a plane from South Australia and they drove me to the famous tan track here, straight off the plane, straight to the tan. I'd never uh-huh. heard of the tan, never been to the tan before. We did an eight-kilometre time trial. I'd been to schoolies a week the week before. Yeah. That was my preparation. Like, how dumb could you be? And I didn't even realise it was a hill. I got halfway up the hill and I was in real trouble. I remember one of my teammates Anderson going. Anderson Street Hill, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Anderson the Street Hill, the famous. And second lap round, I came second last. In that run, I thought, oh, this is going to be the shortest career of all time. I'm going back on a, home on a plane. So you'd, li- you'd like to have been a bit better prepared than that. Look, we've covered, obviously, the AFL side of things and now your new projects around leadership and understanding that space. Where does hobbies fit into your lifestyle? Do you have things that you just do because they're just fun to do and they're no added value? You know what? I think planning trips, getting away, I love that. You know, it doesn't have to be far, can be far. And once I'm on it, I'm still planning the next thing. But I reckon you lose something if you haven't got just something like that you do that's 100% just for fun for yourself. Yeah, I think playing sport for a living, you end up with these great lifelong connections. You get busy, you have kids in, but when you get back and you connect with those friendships and mm. yeah, it's a bit like you're 18 again, Yeah, wind the clock back, everything tends to get competitive. You tend <laughs> to, uh, you know, the stories get bigger and bolder. So th- th- those moments, trying to make more time for them, they're, they're good fun. And what about uh, holidays though? And do you have a destination that is yours and your wife's favorite spot that you've been to or that you want to, you can't wait to go back to? We've had this great experience and I did interview him on the podcast. One of my great mates in life uh, who I played footy with is a guy called Craig Ellis and he started a business. Um, I'll never forget the phone call. He said, I'm, I've just met a girl I'm moving to Hong Kong. I've sold everything I've got, which was about $30,000. I'm starting an online bikini business. And I was like, mate, I've heard you say some dumb things. That may be <laughs> the stupidest thing you've ever said. And that be- has become this extraordinary business, Triangle Bikinis. Have a look at it. He's now living in Monaco. And so we've had some great holidays. I keep saying to him, it's like, my lifestyle's attached to your ongoing success, mate. So don't make any rash decisions <laughs> from now on. This is bigger than you now. Yeah. This has got bigger. So we've had, with another great mate, we've been able to go and travel and take the kid, do stuff that we wouldn't have even thought about. Uh, doing. So um, that's been a lot of fun. Luke, I can't honestly thank you enough for everything you've shared today. 
if our listeners want to hear more, especially around the podcast, where would you like to direct your, our listeners to go to? Very kind of you, Dure. Thanks for having me on uh, today. Empowering Leaders is the podcast. And the business we started that I was talking to you about before is called A Leader. The podcast was born out of the stories of us having leaders from different backgrounds get together in these collaborative pods. And so a leader, A-L-E-D-A is the space. So if people are interested in in how to sort of connect and learn and collaborate, we're really passionate about that, bringing people together from different backgrounds. So thanks for giving me the chance to give it a plug. Next on the show, I wanted to introduce you to a couple of people who are really nailing the whole work-life balance thing. My next guest, Steve, has a hobby that I'm sure he has sunk a fair bit of cash into. Steve works as a fireman, but how's this? He likes to buy and do up old cars. Steve, we're talking work-life balance on this episode, but right at the top, can you just tell our listeners how many hours a week you work? A minimum 48 hours. You do 48 hours, but there's a catch, isn't there? There is a bit of a catch, yeah. I'm a fireman. That's my full-time job. And we work two 24-hour shifts in a cycle of eight days. So it gives me sort of six days off out of eight. So you've got two intensive days of work, 48 hours. On the days off, what takes up most of your time? Uh, probably time in my garage working on my old cars. I mean, would you? is it insulting to call what you do with the cars a hobby or is that something more closer to a, a second side hustle? No, no, it's 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 a hobby. I'd describe it as a hobby. Maybe even a sickness, really. <laughs> <laughs> For someone like me who doesn't even have his driver's license, talk me through the process of your hobby. Well, I like sort of pre-60 cars and trucks, like little, little hot rod type trucks. When I got the hot rod, it was a four-door car and it was just basically a shell with nothing in it on sitting on a chassis. Two chassis rails and a body with no glass, no seats, no instruments, basically pulled out of a creek, I think it was. With a hot rod, you just can't go to the shop and buy a part and you know it's going to fit. You've got to sort of make things fit and that's what takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. I got it to a certain stage where it it was rolling, but then my eldest son, he he sort of got the age where he needed a car. So my hot rod got put, put to the side and I bought him a car and then we worked on that. And then a nephew wanted a car, so we bought him a car and we worked on that. And basically I had a few other projects come along. And by the time I got back under my hot rod, it was nearly 12 years later. <laughs> I love that. I love this so much. So what was the, what was the uh, fulfilment like when it was finally done and it was like basically 12 years in the making? Yeah, look, it's, it's exciting, but there's apprehension too, you know, because you've, you've put all these parts together that, you know, there's a bit from here and a bit from there. and It's like a Frankenstein of the cars. Frank, exactly, yeah. It's like a Frankenstein, yeah. Do you, is there an apprehension about the, the end of it, like in terms of even if it works? Yeah. You know, that project is over. Yeah, not, not really because generally I've already got the next project to go. Whilst I'm building one car, I've got the next one that I'm going to build and in some cases I might end have the one after that, which I do at the moment. I'm building an old... 1958 Chevy pickup at the moment. But once that's finished, I've got a 1947 Buick, which I'm going to do. And then I've got another little Dodge truck that I'm going to build. So we're talking in this episode about work-life balance and the roles that hobbies play and how important they are. I guess I'm flipped the question a bit on you by going, if for whatever reason this gets wiped out, this this outlet that you have, talk us through how how challenging that would be if you're not able to do this hobby again. And in that sense, 
talk us through how, why is this important for your well-being? I've actually thought about this myself because, um, you know, with electric cars and the environment, whether they're going to let old cars on the road anymore, I'd be devastated. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. You know, a lot of the guys I work with, they, they surf, they play golf, they do that to keep themselves entertained. But me, yeah, I'm not interested in that. I, don't, I, don't, I honestly don't know what I would do. There's times when I, you know, you, you get down, everyone gets down, I suppose, and then I think about the good things and things that I'm doing in my garage, mm. things that keep me busy, and that sort of that helps, helps, you know. Does having the garage then help with being able to disconnect from the job of being a firefighter and recognise it as being a job? and realise there's more to you than just being a firefighter. Even something like that garage, you know, and working on the cars give you that um, escape. Yeah, it gives me that outlet, yeah, just to not think about work all the time, yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm doing in my garage and working things out there. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us about your hobby. I think that it's something that we can't speak highly enough about the importance of having an outlet for, you know, someone to unwind, someone to to recalibrate and focus uh, that removes themselves from their the, the grind of their work. So we really appreciate what you've shared with us, but also appreciate the work that you do as the fireman. So thank you for everything, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me. My next guest, Lorna, spends her day working behind a desk. But at night, like Batman, she swaps the desk for some decks. Lorna followed her passion for music and outside of her day job, Lorna is pumping up the crowds as a DJ. Lorna, thank you so much for joining me on this episode where we're talking work-life balance. So to kick us off, let's get an understanding of what you actually do for work. Okay, my day job is here at Southern Cross Osteria. I work on the listener vertical for kids and parenting. Right. So basically we create podcasts and radio stations for kids as well as podcasts for parents. How much does that sort of take up of your day? So I will often get into the office between 7 and 7.30 in the morning. That gives me some time to get actual work done before everyone else comes online. And then I got kind of swallowed up by meetings and schedules and recordings. And then I kind of get out of here by about 5. Okay. So it's a pretty, you know, it's not 9 to 5 anymore. It's a 7 to 5 kind of operation. And how much of your brain space is taken over even after you leave <laughs> You know, I was only thinking about this at 3 a.m. this morning. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. How do you feel you've been able to maybe navigate that balance between having your work take over your thoughts at 3 a.m. versus actually realizing I can't just grip tightly onto this thing. I need to let my brain muscles relax. I've found having other outlets obviously really helpful for most of my kind of working life, I've also had a parallel work life, I guess. I'm a DJ, you know, music is my background. I have a real passion for electronic music. And it's weird because a lot of people say to me, why do you have a day job and you do another radio show at night on community radio and you DJ? And it's because it's this combination of things that actually allows me to function in everything. For me, DJing as an introvert, it's not my, I would never have thought in my childhood I would have ended up as a DJ because being in front of people terrifies me. But I can stand up in front of 3,000 people on a stage 
and play music for an hour and be completely in the moment with those people, be able to get immediate feedback on what I'm doing. And like there is such a sense of kind of achievement, but also joy in that, that I, I don't get from my day-to-day work. Tell me this though, Lorna, as someone who doesn't know a lot about the DJing world in, in spite of my initials being DJ, in stand-up comedy, a bad gig is people not laughing, people heckling you, maybe throwing stuff at you or whatever. That's a bad night at a comedy gig. What is an equivalent of bombing in as a DJ? People don't dance. And you know the, the most critical audience you can DJ to? Kids. <laughs> Did you just have Baby Shark on loop? <laughs> no, but they are the most critical audience. You will know immediately if they love or hate you. They will literally just stand there and stare at you. <laughs> that is the most terrified I've ever been as a DJ. Is there a reward though in and then seeing you turn a, a crowd that was necessarily not vibing with you and then being able to find that that ability to turn them around and get them going? That must feel like you've, you know, really pulled yourself out of a trough. Yeah, no, it really is. You've got a limited amount of music with you when you DJ, so you really have to rely on being incredibly prepared. Do you just keep like a backup copy of What's the Story Morning Glory and just play Wonderwall <laughs> on loop? Surely that'll get people going. That's a safe bet. There's certainly um, a DJ wedding set that I keep in the yeah, background yeah, yeah. just in case. Grease Lightning. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Big, I- I'm the one who wants to be with you. The voice. Why did you know what? Just hire me to pick your selection. You're a great <laughs> comedian. <laughs> Wow. I I mean, the the sarcasm just broke the microphones here. It was so cutting. (laughs) If I were to then, to finish up, to say, if you had $10 million in your bank account and money isn't your motivator, how would you reckon you'd, you know, plan out your day? I don't know if I'd do anything differently. I'm living the life and the balance of life that I choose to already. I love working. I love making. I love creating. So I would never stop doing that. Even if I had $10 million, I just might be doing it in a much nicer house. (laughs) That's perfect. And so if there's someone out there who doesn't even know really where to start, do you have any guidance as to for how they might start to think about what might fill their soul? Think about what makes you happy. (laughs) It's that simple. It's not the same for everyone. I think people can get lost in trying to map their lives against someone else's life. Instagram's been kind of central to this, where people are getting an insight into other people's lives and thinking, oh, that seems to make them happy, so maybe I'll try it. And that's fine. I mean, I think it's good to experiment, good to try. Totally. But I wouldn't measure your happiness against someone else's. I think you have to really look inside and go, I don't know, if bird watching makes you happy, go bird watch. If DJing makes you happy, go buy some records and be really terrible at it for a long time. But it doesn't matter. You'll get better. And that's how you learn to be good at your craft. There's the thing that feeds your wallet, but there's the thing that feeds your soul. And if you can get the right balance in your life where your wallet's being filled and your soul's being filled, then you're winning. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lana, for joining us. 
So next time that you have a day off, think about how you can make the most of it. When it comes to our jobs, we put a plan in place. We know what time we're going to show up, what we're going to do, but too many of us forget to do that in our personal lives. It could be as easy as spending the day out with your family or going to see a movie, or it could be something you've just been wanting to do. Book an archery lesson, go to the beach, relax, start learning how to DJ, whatever floats your boat. Get your work-life balance right, and I promise you, you will start to feel happier. Your life will have more meaning. On the next episode of Driver's Seat, I want to get a little serious. One of the major things that helped me back for my best life was my reliance on alcohol and food as coping mechanisms. Professor Dan Lubman is the clinical director of Turning Point, and he joins me in the next episode to talk about the dangers of addiction. It's very hard for people, even though they might think they might have a problem, to put their hand up and be honest about it because it's really frightening to admit I might have this problem because what does that say about me? Addiction is something that can get to anyone. And my comedy pal, Dave Hughes, or better known as Husey, joins me to discuss the impact that addiction had on his life and how getting past that addiction has changed who he is today. I was never a violent drunk as a young man. Man, but I was a hopeless drunk, so I would basically black out. About a week later, I got pulled over by a taxi. This taxi driver just cut me off in traffic. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And then the guy got out of his taxi really angry. I said, what's happening, man? And he said, you remember me? I said, no. He said, I drove you home from the police cells last week, and you said you were going to go in and get some money for me. And just never came and out. I never came out. <laughs> I said, sorry, man, I can't remember that at all. And anyway, I found the money for him next time on The Driver's Seat. 